Flyers Daily with Jason Martinez. All right, here we go. Flyers Daily for Tuesday, July 5th. Jason Martinez with you, and I hope everybody had a great 4th of July weekend, safe one, and uh, you enjoyed the holiday. Back at it today, and it's going to be a busy week for the NHL, for the Flyers, and a lot going on. Here's our schedule for the week. Obviously, today's episode will feature Flyer Scout Mark Gregg. He joined us last year. He'll join us on this episode along with Bill Meltzer in just a moment. Then coming up tomorrow, we'll talk to the Flyers Director of Player Development, Alan McCauley. Thursday, we'll hear from the Assistant GM, Brent Flair. And then obviously Thursday night's the NHL Draft. And uh, we'll have the requisite interviews and commentary for you on Friday's episode as well. And we'll also have a Saturday episode uh, with the draft happening on Friday and as well with the draft happening uh, and concluding coming up on Friday. A couple of things before we get to Mark Gregg and Bill Meltzer. Obviously, the situation with Ivan Fedotov um, is quite disturbing. And, I mean, this is well beyond hockey, obviously. And this young man and his safety. We're seeing so many reports and so many different varying reports. And, look, I don't know what's true. I don't have sources in Russia. Um, I don't know what's going on. We see the reports that he's got to do a year of military service. He's going to be training somewhere north of the Arctic Circle. Some are calling it retaliation for him not returning to his team in the KHL. Whatever the cause, whatever the reason is, incredible what's going on. And not in a good way. I mean, it seems obvious that he's not going to be coming over here in the calendar month of July and trying to compete for an NHL roster spot this coming season. But it doesn't even matter. The big thing is is that we hope the young man is safe and that he is in no danger and that he will be able to resume his life and his hockey career at some point very, very soon. So just an incredible story and incredibly unfortunate uh, for Ivan Fedotov. So I wanted to mention that off the hop. The Flyers did put out a statement last week. Uh, the, you know, this was obviously breaking and information coming out of Russia doesn't flow like maybe it does in some other countries. And Chuck Fletcher, the Flyers president of hockey operations, said, quote, we are aware of the reports and are investigating the situation. We have no further comment at this time. I'm sure they're trying to learn everything they can as well, uh, but we'll see where all of this goes. Uh, the other big story in regards to the Flyers is what Elliot Friedman wrote on his 32 Thoughts blog about Alex Dabrinkit. Now, we know Alex Dabrinkit is available, and he, Chicago Blackhawk winger, has had a couple of some really successful seasons. He's off to a great start to his career. In four years, in 368 games, he's got 160 goals, 147 assists, 307 points, and he's a guy that has scored 41 goals twice already in his NHL career. Uh, has a 28-goal season. That was his rookie year, then a 41 in year two. Then in 70 games played in year three at 18 goals, and then 32 the year after in his 23-year-old year. And last year, in 82 games, scored another 41 goals. Obviously a gifted scorer. This is a complicated one to go after. Now, he is what you would deem as, quote, high-end talent, something Chuck Fletcher said they needed. We all agree that they need more high-end talent. We've talked about... They need to put able to put a guy over the boards that when he jumps on the ice, the other team knows he can go out there and score on any shift. And he can do it by himself. He can do it in a variety of different ways. Alex Dabrinkit can do that. Now, 
the concern is he's in his last year of a, of his deal at six and a half million, and then he's going to have a qualifying offer of nine million with one year left of restricted free agency. And if he chooses not to sign an extension or a contract as an RFA beyond that year, he'll be an unrestricted free agent, which means he can walk for free. So the price to get to Brinkett is going to be very steep. It's going to include the number five overall pick, possibly another first-round pick, and probably a couple of players, including an NHL roster player, and probably one that can contribute to your team. The issue here becomes for me, I, first of all, I don't love paying a winger north of $10 million. I just don't like doing it. I believe in building the blue line and up through the middle. I, that, that's how, I'm not against it. He does help you. But the big problem to me here is that if the Flyers swung a deal for Alex Dabrinkit, all of the leverage in any kind of contract negotiation swings in the favor of Alex Dabrinkit's agent so heavily that I almost that's what causes me pause. Now, why does it do that? If you give up a haul for Alex Dabrinkit, you give up two first-round picks, a player off your roster, a high-level prospect. You give all that up for him. I'm not saying the exchange is not worth it, but the problem is is that when he becomes an unrestricted free agent, the agent and the player know that they can't lose him because they gave up too much to get him. So you got no hand in the negotiation. And now you're looking at paying an insane amount of money for a player, provided he even wanted to extend. So these are all parts of the equation I think we have to consider. I think it's real easy to go, high-end talent's out there, he's available, do whatever you got to do to get him. Well, you got to look at it from that point of view. You got to plan your cap long term. And you also got to look at it and say, am I going to be big enough? I mean, I got a lot of undersized wingers there. And is he going to bring me closer? By trading for him, am I going to open up more holes? It doesn't prove to be a net positive. These are all things that are part of the equation. I want high end talent. I do. But I don't know if this is the right situation because of all the leverage you would hand to his agent when he's just one year away from restricted free agency and a year from unrestricted free agency. And the cost per acquisition will be extremely high. All right, let's get right now to our conversation with Flyers Scout as we lead up to the NHL draft, which will be Thursday in Montreal, the 2022 NHL entry draft, Flyers picking fifth. We spoke to him last year on Scouts Week, and he joins Bill Meltzer and I once again. Here's our conversation with Flyers Scout Mark Gregg. Joining us on this episode of Flyers Daily as we continue to talk to the scouts in advance of the 2022 NHL entry draft, coming to us from beautiful British Columbia. He's having a day. Mark Gregg joins us. Mark, how you doing? Good, thank you. Thanks for having me. Um, how's the summer been so far? It's been a little slow in regards to weather. But uh, the downtime is good, and the sun is starting to come now, so we're looking forward to the next weeks. How's it been preparing for this draft? You've kind of been through it the last couple of years with really the rest of the world, but from a scout's perspective, it's been less than ideal for getting eyes on guys in person, but you got a little bit more of that this past year. How's it been? Certainly much better. Uh, as you mentioned, the opportunity to see them live a lot more the opportunity to have the NHL combine where you can sit down with them in person, um, the opportunity to interview them over and above that, if you choose to do so on a person to person basis. So I think it's made for a better experience for the player, uh, the scouting industry and uh, 
and provided some normalcy, which is great. Oh, we don't have Bill's audio. I'll continue with the next question then. Um, Mark, when you look at it, you know, you had the your son in the draft, and that provided you like these other stress factors. Do you feel like you're going into this draft with just less stress because of the personal aspect of it? Yes, that's fair. I mean, anytime you have a son that's involved and you're following his journey and, and also kind of watching him uh, live out his dream, it's certainly on your mind. So to get back again to some normalcy this year where I'm completely emerged in our draft and our players, <laughs> uh, we're going to go through the process again. Uh, it's been uh, it's been a welcome experience and uh, enjoying the process again. The uh, Western League had a very shortened season uh, during you know, during the height of COVID. Uh, little, you know, more more of a normal year this year. Uh, how much did you have to build in to you know allow for some of these kids that had a very short season last season? The OH in case of the OHL no season at all. Uh, you know, to have a little have a little bit more time to get up to speed and and uh, you know recover their games and then they continue to develop from there. Certainly a significant component. You had to be mindful as you were going through the year that they had not played a lot of hockey. And as you mentioned in the OHL, really none at all. To allow them to get their feet wet, get back into the flow of things and find their way. You also, an approach was to look at it, you know, in missing a year. It's only really a lot of them their second year or first year having eyes on them through a long body of work. So as you guys know, usually when we're drafting the players that are eligible, we've already seen them previously for a year. So our body of work's extended. We lost out on that and we're trying to be mindful of being patient and allowing the kids to work through it. And uh, at the same time, a little bit challenging. Gregor, let me ask you about, I think we talked about this last year, just about when, when you see kids in junior in the dub now or wherever it is, they're, they're more skilled, they're more ready for pro and the next steps along the way, whether they're playing major junior or they're going to go to college or they're going to go to the age, whatever the route is, they seem more ready than ever. Have you seen any stunt in that because of the pandemic um, where maybe they're not as, not even just physically, but mo mentally, emotionally ready to make that next jump? Because this hockey journey is not for the meek. Have you seen any kind of effects of it? I think that's fair to say as well. I mean, they've missed a year of reps, a year of experience. Your coaching. Yes, exactly. All these pieces that you take out for a year and lose, it slowed down the process. And things did start to really evolve for players in the second half. And you could see that happening. So I think that um, they've lost some time. But uh, a lot of it is long-term projection anyway. So you were mindful of that. And, uh, and again, trying to be patient and allow the kids to uh, work through it. Now this season, obviously, there was much more of a chance to get back to live viewings and that kind of thing. Uh, we were just talking with Brent Flair, was saying that, you know, one of the uh, unintentional benefits, but a benefit of the pandemic was, you know, a lot of scouts got more comfortable doing video scouting, a lot better at it. Um, how much you know? How, how much do you think that actually has become, you know, more of a more of a viable factor in supplementing? Because there still is obviously no substitute for live viewings, but just for feeling comfortable supplementing live viewings with with watching on video. 
I think it's another tool uh, that we can use, no question in my opinion, and I think the industry is indicative of that. The live viewings are the premier viewings that you need and as many of them as possible. And when you want to revisit a player on video or maybe see a game that you couldn't get to, add some dynamic to it or whichever, it's a great tool. But for me, it's definitive that the live viewings um, and being in the rink and feeling the game and seeing things for your own eyes are significant. Um, I think the industry flirted with the idea, well, maybe we can do this by video, cheaper, more effective. And pick games that you like but I think it settled back down into you know what we have to see these players live um, several times and then we can use the video as a tool when you look at this year's draft I, I've mentioned this to Jochen Grumberg and to Brent as well that you know all everybody wants to point to next year's draft the 2023 because there's this really special player at the top of that draft in Connor Bedard. And this draft kind of gets poo-pooed in a lot of ways because it doesn't have the generational talent or a signature player sitting at the top of it. But how would you rate kind of looking at this first round or top 20 picks um, in comparison to other years in, in the sense that is this a pretty deep draft but just not a sensational at the top? Or how would you kind of term it? It is not sensational at the top at this point, as we know players and outliers surface years later. But going into the draft, uh, for me, it is not sensational at the top. And I do think it maybe be, lacks a bit of depth, too. And as we went through the viewings and build up all our evaluations in this year, again, like I mentioned, you can't help but notice what's coming through the next year. And aside from Bedard, there's several other players that are already yeah. showing significant impact at what they're doing at their age and our job is to scout the group that's available this year and on some nights your eyes are wandering because everybody gets excited about a really good underage uh, for different reasons so uh, to answer your question I don't think it's sensational at the top and I think it lacks a bit of depth at this point as we all know historically there'll be some outliers that pop and uh, jump and that'll take place. But uh, going into the draft, uh, my take is, uh, you know, 15 drafts I've worked in, it's it's an okay draft. Over uh, over the years, uh, when we were just talking with, with, with Brent about this, the uh, USHL has gone from a league where, you know, there wouldn't be a lot of scouts at games to where it's now a highly, one of the highly scouted leagues, um, you know. And, and uh, you know, I, I think also, some of the Canadian junior A leagues and you can go, you can go back even to a guy like Jamie Ben who ended up being, I think a fifth round pick by Dallas, uh, you know, and of course ended up being a phenomenal pick. And then more recently, uh, of course, Makar took the, took the junior A route because he was intending to go to college. Um, have you, have you seen where you, know, you have some of these, these big success stories, guys who took the junior A route and it becomes a more uh, attractive route, both for you know, both for players who are potentially thinking of, of uh, most most likely the college, but also also for scouts to attend. Hey, maybe there's some guys. Obviously, Bedard or, or rather Bacar was always a big name, but I mean, so maybe some guys who are kind of outliers who maybe in a year or two, you know, may pop. I think there's always some. Uh, the USHL, as you mentioned, it continues to grow. The product gets better. Obviously, they have numbers on their side with the size of the country and the minor hockey programs they have. They continue to spend significant dollars 
I think at the grassroots level. So I think the USHL is only going to get better. Um, of course, you know, their, their environment is that of a lot of NC pro double programs that are significant. If you're raised in Michigan and you get a chance to watch Michigan play or whichever state it may be, you're embedded in it. It takes on a life of its own as far as it's what you know, it's what you see and it's what you connect to with. So I think the USHL is going to continue to grow and only get better. In Canada here, CHL is definitively our most developed league as far as continuing to produce product and players. Hey, hey Mark, let me ask you this question. You were number one uh, first-round draft pick in 1990. You, we're roughly the same age. We can joke about age. You, you were a first-round pick back in 1990. 15th overall by the Hartford Whalers. What's the difference now, Gregor, between the 15th overall pick in 1990 and 2022, other than the obvious age? Well, you guys kind of alluded to, to, to it. The players have uh, so much more opportunity through the minor hockey stream and building up through the junior ranks as far as resources. I think fitness, I think the coaching I think the skill set that they develop and have the opportunity to be in and around is significant to when we came through in the mid to late 80s and, and I was drafted in 90. So the player is a more polished product. They have more direction, both from coaching agents and other venues. The player is is got so many more resources now and so many more opportunities to better themselves, both on the ice and off the ice. And from a coaching standpoint, that. Uh, you're a little bit closer to a finished product, but certainly a more polished product and uh, and one that's been through certainly a lot more skill development. Uh, well, one thing that I've heard coaches, development people, you know, often say is that the, the, today's generation of players, you know, they, they want they want information from coaches. Right. They uh, it's not just being told what to do. It's a little bit of an explanation of why they're being asked to do something. Have you have you seen that evolution over time where you know they have they have exposure to more coaching, they have exposures exposure to uh, more opportunities, right? So you know, so they they may be a little bit savvier in terms of okay, you know, they're a little more developed, so they want to know not just what they're being asked to do, but an explanation of what the what the purpose and benefit of some of that is. Hundred percent accurate. Um, when I came through, it was more of an approach from a player standpoint or my vantage point was the coaches asking us to do this, we do this. But the players now are way more educated and way more knowledgeable. And the, often the question is why and show me scenarios why and as, 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 and as to how this tactic or strategic is going to be effective. Why does it work? And I think it's put more pressure on coaches to be better teachers, be better listeners, build a better relationship. And it's really grown the game. So now you've got a player that's uh, connected to his coach, understands the process, believes in it, or, or maybe can challenge the coach on a different approach. It opens up a lot of dialect. And I think the level of play increases. And uh, I think it started to surface, you know, in the early 2000s where the players were getting so much more information at a younger age uh, through watching NHL hockey, through upgrading and the, the, the coaches at the minor hockey level now, I think are better, their agents and uh, being embedded in, in maybe better 
uh, environments around pros potentially or higher end juniors. So they, uh, they get to see it, they get to live it. They smell it a little bit earlier. And uh, there's no question that the hockey player now is more knowledgeable in my opinion than, than before. Um, last one for you from me, Mark. Um, when you look at, you know, this draft and what, what you got a chance to, to scout this year and look at, um, you, you know, we talked with Brent about this. It's a, it's a copycat league. You see what's working for teams. Is the ultimate thing and really the thing when it comes to roster building and, and by proxy, following all the way through all the different elements of roster building, scouting and everything and development, is it ultimately knowing what you want to be as a team? Because he mentioned, you know, Tampa's a team with, you know, big – you know, big bodies on the left side defensively and, and the way they built their team, some high-end skill. And then you look at Colorado, it's just high-flying. It's different. They can lock it down too. But is it, it is it just an organizational knowing of what you are and want to be from a DNA standpoint? And not only knowing that, but living that every day and, and being that as an organization without much flexibility. Yes, in my opinion, it is. Uh, culture and identity are two staples that have to be in place. And I think they have to be almost, as you said, daily. You have to be committed to it. You don't waver. You don't stray. You don't wander. You can move things around within that and play with it a little bit. But uh, the culture and the identity uh, for what an organization or a team is trying to be, build, for me, should have a definitive look to it every night the team dresses. And I think, you know, we this year we were fortunate enough to see, in my opinion, the best team from the West, the best team from the East, a little bit different approach in how they were doing things, but totally committed night in and night out how they're going to play. Colorado's going to come in with speed. They're not going to slow it down. We saw it night after night after night. They lose, they're not changing. They believe in it. Tampa's got their approach with that big six decor there. They're going to be hard to play in their own zone, try to give you no space front of the net's a real challenging area and they're going to run a power play that's elite so um, whatever your identity or culture is and why you believe in it I think is actually you know the staples that allow you to have success and then building continuity in doing so so that you're continually putting the same effort and program forward and as we all know you're not going to win every night but if it's successful more times than not you've got yourself a good program in it. It's it's deciding what that is, committing to. I always bring up the Pittsburgh Steelers. You know, they, they sure. know what they are. They draft to their identity and they draft to their DNA. And sometimes, look, it's not always going to work out because you are drafting kids. And if they find out that a guy doesn't fit their DNA or doesn't fit their identity, he's gone. And they get another guy that is. It's just, it, it's belief in what you believe in and to do it every day. So I appreciate that answer. Go ahead, Bill. Yeah, my my, my question also it, it, it goes in a little bit into to culture and identity. Um, you know, when you when you weigh from an amateur scouting standpoint, when you weigh some of the intangible factors, you know, with, with some of these players you may potentially draft, um, you know, it, it, does it weigh in anywhere in there that if a, a kid comes from a from a series, particularly of, of winning programs, right, where there's uh, where there's some structure, where where there's uh, well-established coaching where there's a tradition and expectation of winning. Does that, uh, does that play in at all into any of the factors you weigh? Also, also keeping in mind, of course, you know, some there's, there isn't always a choice in some of these things. If you're playing on a, on a junior team, that's, you know, has been in a rebuilding phase as you're working up there, that's beyond your control to, to some extent. 
But uh, you know, but on the other hand, you have somebody who's been winning minor hockey, major junior. Is that does that kid sometimes have a little bit of a leg up in in terms of the uh, intangible factors of what will be expected from him as he moves up? I think when you're splitting hairs on players, and we have conversations where you're looking for some reason to maybe put a player ahead of a player on a list, that would be something that would be a notable. He comes from a culture that they work hard. They're always in top shape. They seem to do things right nutritionally. They seem to carry themselves appropriately off the ice. They come from a winning program or maybe it's an ultra competitive program. Maybe they don't have the best talent every night, but their teams overachieve through their commitment to compete and drive. These types of things for us, it's so relieving. Uh, Do we go away from a player that doesn't have that? I'm not so sure we do that every time, but we take, Take a deep sigh of breath when we uh, know that a player's coming from a program that's got good character, good habits, good details. And when you get to splitting hairs sometimes, I think that would be one of the scenarios that it may push a little bit to the player that's uh, in that environment. How much are you looking forward to getting back on the floor at, well, the, at the actual draft, doing this thing in person? You know, for us, this is our day. It's an accumulation of 200 to 20 to 260 games and multiple nights where you get to sit there as a group with the other teams. Of course, we have colleagues that we're close to on other teams, and all of us get to embrace the day and the night. And uh, as intense as it may be at times, is are we getting this player? How is this going to unfold? It's also so nice to be, uh, you know, in the setting, watch the player and the family embrace the night and uh, and work together as a group. So. I'm I'm so happy that we're here again, and uh, you know, two years in a boardroom sitting beside Brent Flair was getting old. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and the other thing is, it's pretty special that you're coming back, and it's in Montreal of all places as well, one of the cathedrals of sport. Absolutely, I mean, historically, you know, the franchise uh, speaks for itself, and and the draft was there for years uh, repetitively. So, um, great city, great hockey environment, great hockey culture, and, and a great building for us to, to all come back together. It makes it kind of neat. No doubt about it. And another, Gregor, great appearance from you on Flyers Daily. We yeah. appreciate it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, get back to the, uh, the the tremendous scene out there. I'm expecting a picture in my email of what you're seeing in the backyard <laughs> out there in British Columbia, because I imagine it's not looking like my backyard right now. <laughs> Oh, it's beautiful, and uh, it's great for us to – we've done a lot of work. It's great to step back for a little bit and then hit the draft with clear thoughts and then turn it off for a little bit and recharge for the next year. Great place to be. Well said. Thanks for doing this. Awesome. Thanks, guys. Thanks to Mark Gregg for joining us on this episode of Flyers Daily. Again, coming up tomorrow, we will have Flyers Director of Player Development, Alan McCauley. I think you're going to enjoy this conversation about roster building, development of players, both uh, as they're – getting to pro hockey, and then their development from pro hockey through their NHL career. A lot to talk about with Alan McCauley. Brent Flair, Flyers assistant GM, will be our guest on draft day coming up on Thursday. Everybody, have a great Tuesday. We'll talk to you tomorrow on a brand new Flyers day.